I'm Dr. Ann Katz. Welcome to Sexually Speaking, a podcast about all things related to sexuality with zero sensationalism, but lots of information. This episode, I have the immense pleasure of talking to Dr. Peggy Kleinplatz. She's a professor in the Faculty of Medicine, as well as the Director of Sex and Couples Therapy Training at the University of Ottawa in Ottawa, Canada. Dr. Kleinplatz has received many accolades and has published widely. Just Google her name and you'll see how much she has done. And today I want to talk to her about her latest book, Magnificent Sex, Lessons from Extraordinary Lovers. Welcome, Peggy. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Katz. So can you tell me how this book came to be? I'm so glad you asked. Um, it's where my longtime clinical interests converge with my research interests. For years and years and years, I've been seeing individuals and couples in sex therapy where probably the most common presenting complaint for sex therapists everywhere is discrepancies in desire. So one person is complaining the other is asexual, one person is complaining the other is a sex addict, but there is some kind of discrepancy. And who knows if either one of them is diagnosable with anything, but because they're together, there's a complaint. And the literature in our field doesn't show a lot of really great success. So for most of my career, I had a seven and a half month waiting list, which made me miserable. It seemed unethical. I couldn't sleep at night worrying about how do I deal with so many people with desire problems. So now let's put that on hold for a second. 2003, I'm sitting and teaching uh, my human sexuality class at the University of Ottawa, and there's a student named Dana who keeps raising her, her hand as I'm covering research and saying, but Cosmo says this, and Vogue says that, and um, Playboy, Playboy still existed. You know, Playboy says this. It's like, <clears throat> how come you keep saying all this stuff about sex when, you know, everyone knows that great sex is, I said, well, if you really want to know more, why don't you apply to graduate school? And she did. So she became uh, one of my graduate students. And we spent the next years studying optimal sexual experiences and contrasting the myths about hot sex, great sex that are out there in mainstream media and in porn as compared to the reality of what happened when we studied people who were having the kind of sex that was worth wanting and that grew better and better and better into their 60s and 70s and 80s. Now, where this started to converge was, could we take what we learned from the extraordinary lovers, which was what we came to call the old married people, and the people outside the box, the sexual minorities, the LGBTQ people, the consensually non-monogamous people, the people who are into kink, all of whom were describing the best experiences of their lives. And could we take what we learned from these extraordinary lovers and apply them to people who were distressed about sexual desire discrepancy and to see if these lessons could change the quality of sex among those with sexual desire discrepancy so that I could get rid of my waiting list. And it worked. So we wrote a book about it. And Dana became Dr. Menard, and she's now a psych prof at the University of Windsor. Great story. So I have a question. Is hot sex not the same as magnificent sex? So, you know, most people crave hot sex, particularly, you know, the kind that we were having in the beginning of a relationship. 
and people want to get back to that. So what's the difference between hot sex and magnificent sex? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Magnificent sex is much better than the stuff that you had at the beginning of your relationship. So hot sex is kind of cheap and easy because you don't have to face each other in the morning or you're not sure if you'll have to face each other in the morning so you can just afford to let go. But there's something much more rewarding, fulfilling, meaningful about being deeply into a relationship with someone you know you'll have to face in the morning and whom you've known for decades. And where now, when you choose to really be authentic and let go and be yourself, you know that someone who means a lot to you is looking at you as you're allowing yourself to be emotionally and erotically naked. That makes it all the more fulfilling when you let that person penetrate you, not only literally, but metaphorically. This leads me to another question, or perhaps, you know, in part a statement. So in your book, and I just want listeners to know, really, this is such a great read. There are the quotes of people who are having magnificent sex, talking about what makes it magnificent. And one of the components of magnificent sex is erotic intimacy. And I'd like you to talk a little bit more about this. And I see individuals who have been affected by cancer and other illnesses. And they will often say to me, you know, I'm having problems in my with intimacy. And my first question is always, do you feel connected to your partner? Is there emotion, love there? And they say, oh, absolutely. And, you know, and that's when I say, you don't have a problem with intimacy, right? You, you have a sexual problem. That's something different. So talk to me about erotic intimacy. What is it? Thought yet. First, I have to thank you. Because that drives me nuts. I mean, my business card says sex therapy. And once upon a time, people walked in my office and they said, I have a sexual problem. It's about 10 years now that nobody uses the word sex and sex therapy. They, ca- they talk about intimacy problems. And they're, they're so much more euphemistic now. I mean, every generation thinks it invented sex. And yet, oh, people are so much more closed now and euphemistic now than they were 15 years ago. So thank you so much for demystifying that word. You've just made my day. So what is erotic intimacy? Um, It really is about sharing who you are as a sexual and erotic being at a very deep level. And I was expecting to hear people use the word love a lot. And interestingly, they didn't. And I don't know if this is just an artifact of the fact that we speak English. And in English, you say, oh, I love a beautiful spring day. I love ice cream. I love my parents. I love my dog. I love you. And they don't mean the same thing at all. And I don't know if it was that our participants were so astute that they almost never used the word love, but they talked about everything that goes into what it means to love another person. So they talked about deep, deep caring, liking the other person a lot, admiring the other person, mutual respect, um, treasuring the mutuality that comes of being together, treasuring the knowledge that at every step along the way, they're arranging for mutual consent overtly, not making assumptions, really caring about the other person's pleasure as much as one's own. And that sense of mutuality 
was a huge part of what they meant by deep erotic intimacy. It's that feeling about the other person and knowing that it's reciprocated while in the course of being sexual together. You know, I think, you know, people often think that sex is for the young. And, you know, I have to tell you, I kind of fell into that trap in my 20s and 30s. I couldn't figure out why people would be having sex, you know, in their 40s and beyond where everything's jiggly and wrinkly. Fortunately, I have proven myself to be wrong there. And certainly that ability to be vulnerable is so important as a true part of emotional intimacy. So, Words are important, and I think words are no more important than in a relationship where you are free and open and able to say what you want and what you don't want. You know, another component that you write about in this book is about extraordinary communication and deep empathy. I'm a huge empath. I take on the feelings of others quite readily and easily, sometimes to my peril. So what is it about extraordinary communication and deep empathy that leads to magnificent sex? Nothing is more crucial. I don't know if nothing's... If this isn't the most crucial thing, it's just about the most crucial thing. So it turned out to be crucial in the early years of our research from, say, 2005-2007, as we were studying what the components were of optimal sexual experience. But when we later studied what were the facilitating factors, that turned out to be there as well. So what is this? So picture a grid of giving and receiving with verbal communication and touch, where the emphasis is probably on the way we express ourselves through touch. So think, for example about all the clients that you've seen, that I've seen, who complain that when their partners touch them, it feels like they're just polishing wood. You know, my partner just goes back and forth and back and forth. And whether she's stroking my penis or she's stroking stroking my my sore feet or the tension in my neck is just back and forth. It's like she's not even present while she's touching me. Okay, so these people... The extraordinary lovers are quite the opposite. They would touch so as to actually feel. And they would allow themselves to be felt through touch. So you and I have both dealt with people who have what the DSM-4 used to call vaginismus or what the DSM-5 calls GPPPD. That is the tightening of a woman's genitals upon being penetrated. And I've come to think of that very much the way physicians and other healthcare providers talk about guarding when you're evaluating some kind of physical problem and you see the patient's body just tighten as you're trying to figure out what's going on inside that person. All right. So, you know, I got uh, an injection for um, COVID the other day, very happy about getting it. And I'm sure that my whole body tightened as that nurse came near me with that syringe, and I said, I'm going to look the other way. And I did what bodies do. It tightens. Okay. Now, picture being in bed with someone who is touching you with all that person's feelings coming through in the way that person's touching you, and you can feel that caring and that interest in you and that person's curiosity about your pleasure and desire to know you through touch, so much so that your body opens up and all of a sudden 
you allow yourself to be known by letting that person penetrate you on every level simultaneously. You can feel your body soften and open, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about penetrative sex or any other kind of touch. You're allowing yourself to be felt as a person, as a sexual being, as a person with vulnerabilities, because you've opened yourself up on every level. It's like your whole body just goes, ah. Peggy, I've just had like this great insight. Don't laugh at me, but as you know, and perhaps listeners don't know, those of us in this world use sensate focus exercises a lot. And one of the things that so many therapists and counselors get wrong is in not explaining how to do these exercises properly, because the focus needs to be on what you are experiencing as you touch the other, and not to focus on, oh, I wonder what she's thinking, does this feel good for her, or does this, you know, is this erotic for him? And your description of touch is really where the focus is on the self right? And that opening up. I have seen so many patients when I say to them, there's this modality, the sensate focus. And they say, oh yeah, we did it with this other therapist. And like, yeah, it really didn't work for us. And I then say, can you tell me exactly what instructions you were given? And a hundred percent of the time, they were not given the correct instructions that the focus should be on what you are feeling, not what your partner is feeling, or they misinterpreted it right? And we're just so focused on the patient. So yeah, this touch thing is just so important. Thank Masters and Johnson. I mean, I was so fortunate to have received some of my initial training from Masters and Johnson many decades ago when they were still alive and when they were still even married to each other. And I learned from them what they meant by sensate focus. And I'm pretty sure that most of the people who are teaching sensate focus now never read Masters and Johnson 1970 where they describe how to do sensate focus. So I got it from the horse's mouth. And we do a lot of touch exercises in the group therapy that we developed based on that research. And although we don't do sensate focus as such, we very much do a lot of touching for the toucher's own pleasure, but we add something that we think makes a huge difference. And that is for the person who's about to be touched to have a veto power that that person must verbalize in advance. So if I'm touching you for my own pleasure, but I'm about to touch you in a place where you don't want to be touched, then everything will backfire. So I need to get both people to have a two-minute conversation in advance. And often people make a big fuss about this. They say, oh, you know, that's going to be a long conversation. I say, no, limit it to two minutes. And it's like, okay, I don't want want you touching my left foot. You can touch my right foot, but not my left foot. And as I'm talking to trainees, I say, well, you know, don't you think they should then have a conversation about the rationale behind that? No. The whole point is to get out of that headspace and for whoever is about to be touched to be able to claim the absolute right to veto without having to provide a rationale or justification, but just to say, this I don't want. Anything else you want to do will be fine. And that frees one of them to touch in whatever way that person wants to. And that frees the other person to just enjoy or not enjoy, as the case may be, but know that nothing will happen that violates that person's right to consent, which gives both of them a lot of freedom. 
As you're talking about that, I'm thinking about the women that I see who've had breast cancer and had a mastectomy with or without reconstruction. And what we know, and this is actually surprisingly a fairly recent concept, is that of breast sensuality. So the experience or the role that the breasts play in a woman's sexual response And what happens 100% of the time when women have reconstruction, whether it's with their own tissue or with an implant, is that that breast loses sensation or has like a really weird, rubbery, sometimes painful response to touch. And I find that what often the dynamic that gets set up in the couple is that the partner wants to show acceptance and love despite what has changed in the woman's body. So we'll often deliberately touch that altered breast to show that acceptance. And it's just awful for the woman. It can hurt. It, you know, can be really triggering. And the couple hasn't talked about this. You know, the woman is doesn't want to hurt her partner's feelings. And the whole thing turns into a mess, which takes us back to that role of communication and why that is so important and ultimately so freeing. You know, the only person who really talks about this is you. And that's why I recommend your books, Left, Right, and Center. I recommended two of your books this week, and congratulations on the new edition. Thank you. You're welcome. A very typical presentation in my office is a heterosexual couple walks into my office. She was diagnosed with cancer five years ago. She is now pronounced cancer-free, but they haven't had sex in four years. However, they define sex. And I say, well, what happened in that first year? And he says, well, you know, I really wanted to let her know that I still found her attractive. And so I would touch her in the ways that I used to, not letting any scarring upset me. And then I'd feel her body stiffen and I'd put my hands between her legs and she wasn't yet wet. So I withdrew. And she said, well, I understood that you lost interest in me because of my mastectomy because you'd put your hands on my, well, what used to be my breast, and then you'd check between my legs, and then you lost interest. And he said, no, I didn't lose interest, but you weren't wet. And she'd say, well, of course I wasn't wet. And I'd say, right, do you know why? And she'd say no, and I said, I'd say, no, read this book by Dr. Katz, but you'll remember how When you started chemo and radiation, they told you you were going to be thirsty a lot and drink extra. Did the oncologist ever tell you you're going to need lube and you're going to need like none of this water-based stuff. You're going to need like heavy-duty lube because no matter how subjectively turned on you are, you're going to be dry as dust between your legs. She said, no, no one told me that. And he said, wait a minute, you're telling me that she might have been turned on, but I was going to feel that she was dry? All these years, I thought she was self-conscious because of the mastectomy. And she says, all these years, I thought that he was turned off by my mastectomy. I said, well, a good oncologist could have prevented this just by giving you some information about dryness. And because nobody did, you've been screwed, so to speak. And that means that you haven't had, quote unquote, sexual problems all these years. You've had problems that were created by ignorance, probably the ignorance of the oncologist in giving you the information you needed. And now I'm going to give it to you now, and you're about to go back and reclaim your sex lives. And they feel so much relief. But it brings me back to 
most North Americans don't bother to communicate verbally about, you know, are you into this? He feels between her legs, I know I'm being super heterosexist right now, but the same thing is true for most of the couples I work with. She feels between his legs, when he's hard, when she's wet, they both can avoid conversation by reading the physiologic signs of minimal arousal in people who are healthy. And it's completely useless because it doesn't tell us anything about whether or not people actually want to go further, whatever further might look like. And it's even more useless when people have any kind of medical problem that affects the physiology of sexual response because then you're stuck trying to read something that can't be read that way anymore. When I talk to oncology care providers and, and other healthcare providers for that matter, I say that when it comes to sex and sexuality, to use a more umbrella term, human beings act like dolphins and whales, right? We grunt and squeak and over time you recognize what those sounds are from your partner and you don't have the conversation with words. It can be so difficult to talk about this if you haven't talked about it all the way along. Communication is so important. Human beings have the, have the gift of language and words, and we don't use it. So I want to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about this whole issue of scheduling sex. People don't like to schedule sex. They want sex to be spontaneous. You know, like you see in soap operas, you walk into the room and the next thing clothes are off and the sky is exploding. What's so wrong with scheduled sex? Is there something wrong with it? Well, first, let me agree with you very strongly again that the stuff we see in the media is incredibly toxic because people think they should have feelings spontaneously. I mean, the usual phrase in my office wanted to be natural and spontaneous the way it was when we were first in love and we couldn't keep our hands off each other. That's dribble. And the first thing I need to do with such couples is demystify what that looks like. Because when two people walk into my office and they say, you know, when did that dissipate? They don't say when we married, they say when we moved in together. I say, well, what were you doing before you fell into each other's arms when you were first together? What were you doing that day? And what they were doing all day was priming the pump for that evening. So once upon a time, they'd call each other during the day. Today, they're texting each other during the day. And while one of them is at work and the other is at school, they may be focusing on that in part. But afterwards, when they go to the gym, they do work out and then they each go to their separate houses or they go to you know whichever house they're going to meet at. And one of them fakes cleaning the house. They take their dirty laundry. They may not do the laundry, but they're at least going to hide it under the bed. They're going to take their dirty dishes and they're going to hide it someplace. They're both going to shower. They're both going to shave or groom. And they're going to throw into the laundry hamper the dirty graying underwear with the fraying elastics and put on something instead that makes them feel hot and sexy in their own eyes. They're going to blow dry their hair and put in product, whatever that means, so that when they finally both see each other, it looks natural and spontaneous. So they'd carefully scheduled it all along, but they could create the illusion of natural and spontaneous. And so what I need to say to the couples I work with is, okay, I'm going to be your grade nine math teacher. And I'm going to say, what's wrong with showing the work? 
or more correctly, showing the effort. I mean, if you're doing the, doing it right, there will be effort involved, but it shouldn't feel like work. So forget about this natural and spontaneous dribble. And I don't think scheduling sex, whatever we mean by that, works, but I do think that scheduling time for nothing but each other is crucial. Uh, one of the participants in our research said that what's really important is turning off everything that beeps. So you turn off your phone and your cell phone and your computer and everything. And you set aside time for each other to connect emotionally. And if you do that often enough, then on some of those times that you've set aside for nothing but each other, you've now created the conditions in which sexual arousal and sexual fulfillment can occur. So you can't create great sex, but you can create the conditions in which it's possible that sexually fulfilling experiences can occur. And that's worth scheduling. Oh, that's just such a great place to end. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Peggy Klein-Platz. You are magnificent. I love that book. I am so happy that you have won the Star Consumer Book Award this year. There is no one more deserving. Get this book, Magnificent Sex, Dr. Peggy Klein-Platz. So that's it for Sexually Speaking this time. There'll be more from me with another guest in the coming weeks. If there's a topic you're particularly interested in hearing about, or if you want to contact me about private counseling, just go to my website, drannkatz.com, and you'll find a link to send me an email. 